Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to this uh, teaching on prayer, we ask that you would uh, help us to listen carefully. Uh, In particular, Father, so much of it is so well known. Would you uh, guard us against assuming that we understand it because we are familiar with it? And uh, help us by your Spirit to truly grasp what it is that Jesus is teaching us and to apply that uh, to our situation and uh, our prayer lives uh, this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. I don't know about you, but I don't always find praying easy. Prayer can be a tricky thing to do. And I suppose that's why Jesus uh, teaches us to pray, because uh, we don't always find it easy. Prayer is tricky. Prayer is uh, also uh, ubiquitous. It's common. We, we pray in all sorts of situations. Uh, um, perhaps you've heard the phrase, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Well, if my experience is uh, anything to go by, similarly, there are very few prayerless people on a plane when it goes through significant turbulence. We pray um, before sports games. Some of us pray before finals. Uh, We pray when we come to church. Now, one of the ironies, of course, uh, of this teaching on prayer is that a prayer which was designed, at least in part, to be an antidote to mindless repetition has arguably been more frequently mindlessly repeated than any other prayer in human history. How then are we to understand this prayer? I was wrestling with that quite a lot this week. For it is familiar, but I'm not sure that uh, we always understand it or put it into practice as well as we should. Uh, and uh, So how are we to grasp it? We do so fairly well, I think, here at College Church, but I'm sure there are things that we need to learn too. 
It seemed to me the best way was just to go through it bit by bit. So let's do that. Verse 5. Jesus says, and when you pray. Now, of course, this is a part of Jesus' teaching about uh, acts of righteousness, three common acts of righteousness in all kinds of different religions. Giving, we looked at that uh, right before Easter, prayer this morning, uh, next week fasting. And each of them, Jesus assumes, we will do them, and when you pray, not if you pray, and when you pray. So straight away, as Jesus assumes that we will pray, we need to plan to pray. We need to have prayer lists and alarm clocks to get us up early enough in the morning. (laughs) Reminders to pray, because it's not easy. When you pray... Therefore, we need a plan to pray. If we do not plan to pray, mark it in our calendar, clear our schedule, or schedule, as it should be said. Um, (laughs) We do not plan to pray. I suspect we are planning not to pray. When you pray. Well then, uh, what does Jesus say? As I say, bit by bit. Then Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites when you pray. Well, it's, uh, what does that mean? Uh, the word hypocrite in uh, Greek uh, comes from the word for acting, of course. Now, so Jesus is saying, don't put on a pretense. Praying is not acting. Praying is not uh, trying to appear spiritual before other people, putting on a performance, acting as if we're spiritual. Now, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to avoid that, isn't it? And uh, there are all sorts of ways that perhaps we can fall into this trap of thinking in this way, of putting on a good performance. Uh, you know, prayer is not about um, how do we assess how we're, well we're praying. Praying is, well, is not about how many amens you get. Have you ever felt like that? You're, you're praying in a prayer meeting and, and no one says amen in the middle. And you think, well, I've got to really ramp it up now. And so I give it all my God, and I get two amens. I thought, phew, I, I prayed much better. That's not what prayer is about. It's not about how other people perceive it, like a performance. It's not about how many, um, oh, yeses you get. You're praying along and says, oh, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Well, that must be a good prayer if someone's saying yes three times. Well, not necessarily. It's not about what other people think. Amen, yes. Mmm. Mmm, 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 Easy trap to fall into, isn't it? Performance. It's not acting. Well, then he describes what the hypocrites at the time were doing. They love, he says, to stand and pray in the synagogues. I'm just taking it bit by bit. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here carefully. Jesus is not speaking against public prayer. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself prayed publicly, right? John 17, elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, we find Jesus praying publicly. Jesus is not speaking against public prayer. He's speaking against public prayer that is motivated to be seen by others. It's a question of motivation. See, and this too can be tricky. I remember one time 
uh, I was asked to pray at a fundraising event. One of the almost sort of um, uh, one of the things about being a pastor is you're always being asked to pray. You know, every family event. You know, he's the pastor; he can pray. So, well, I guess I could, but so could you. You know, um, it's a sort of um, occupational hazard. Um, uh, it's not like being a pilot. You know, you must fly the plane. You're a pilot. You know, you're a pastor. You must pray. Well, actually, not necessarily. You know, you can pray too. But I remember once being invited to a, a fundraising event and being asked to pray, and I hadn't turned up with any notes or anything. I'd just gone along and I was going to pray. And I listened to all the very good announcements. It was a good fundraising event, and I understand that these things are necessary. You need to raise funds. We have our own budget here, and we need to make the needs known to God's people and all that sort of thing, and pray for God to provide for the needs of His mission, for us to do kingdom work. It's a, it's a necessary part, and a good part often, of uh, God's work. It challenges us to really give uh, deeply towards uh, the ministry of the church and uh, ministry of this particular Christian organization, which was a good one. But there I was, and I was listening to all the different announcements, and then I began to feel increasingly inside sort of passionate in a most un-English way. Uh, and uh, it's like, oh, this fun rate, this is fine, I understand it, but Lord, it seems so horizontal. Let's have some you know, revival, you know, that's what I was thinking inside. And, and so when I got up to pray, I just prayed my heart out. And, and then afterwards, the most astonishing thing happened. <laughs> they applauded. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> what was in their heads when I was praying? Did they think I was praying to them? It's so easy to get into this mindset, isn't it? Instead, how are we to pray? Not to be seen by others. Instead, verse 6, when you pray, going bit by bit, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. Now, what is this room? The room is uh, probably uh, the storage room. So houses at the time would have had a little storage room, perhaps, and that's probably what it's talking about. The point, though, is that this is a room that you can lock, the door can be shut at least, and you can be out of the sight of other people. When I was at boarding school, I think I may have shared this story before, when I was at boarding school, it's the kind of thing that people sometimes do to their children, they send them off to boarding school. And there I was at boarding school, and I wanted to pray, and there was no private space. It was a dormitory, not like an American-style dormitory where you have your own little room with just two or three people. There was me and 13 or 14 other teenagers. There was nowhere to pray. I wasn't going to get down on my knees by my bedside, and I would have been hit over the head with a pillow, you know. So I thought, well, where can I follow this advice to go and lock the door? There's one place, the John. <laughs> and so that's where I prayed. And you may be in a dormitory across the street. You may not be able to find any private place. But now you have your storage room. Go and lock the door and pray. Now, the point again is not that all public prayer is wrong. The point is that public prayer must be the tip of the iceberg of private prayer. So we need then to have a little check this morning. If I am praying more enthusiastically, a little question. If I am praying more enthusiastically, more passionately, with greater intensity or theological rigor in public than in private, am I on the slippery slope to hypocrisy? We need to ask ourselves that question and correct it by being more enthusiastic when no one notices other than God. 
But there's a reward for this, isn't there? If I do pray in private, Jesus tells us, again, we're going bit by bit. He says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, what is this reward that God promises? The reward is the father. If you're praying for other people's approval, and if you're successful to gain their approval, your reward is their approval. If you're praying for God and his approval in private, your reward is the father. That's the reward. Seek me and you will find me. Seek me and live. That's your heart. God promises that will be your reward. Your reward will be God himself. So Jesus has first said, uh, don't pray when you pray. Don't pray like a hypocrite. Next he says, when you pray, verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. This is the next bit as we go through it bit by bit. Don't heat up, heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do. Well, having spoken against hypocritical or fake prayer, he now speaks against pagan, Gentile, or false prayer, non-Christian, uh, religious prayer. Every religion prays, but a Christian is to pray in a distinct way because they have a distinct theology of who God is. See? And we shouldn't just say, oh, you know, those non-Christians, they pray in a bad way. Actually, what, the reason why Jesus mentions it here is because this attitude can so easily infiltrate our prayers too. Okay, it all goes back to our basic attitude about God, our theology. If you're a Christian, you should care about theology because you're caring then about who God is. It goes back to who we think God is. What kind of God is He? What sort of thing will please Him? Or Gentiles... They just heap up empty phrases. Why? For they think. It's what they think. It's what's going on in here. They think they will be heard for their many words. That's why they pray with many words, because they think that will mean they'll be heard for their many words. Now, again, we need to understand this carefully. Jesus is not saying, you know, I'm against persevering in prayer. You may know that elsewhere he tells a parable uh, where the point of the story is, as Jesus said, we should always pray and not give up. We should persevere, keep on praying over and over again. He says, always pray, don't give up. And we know that Jesus uh, prayed uh, all night. We know also that Jesus repeated himself in prayer. Later in this gospel, he will pray, take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. And then at least one time over in similar words, if not identical words, at least one time more, take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. You can read the Psalms, they repeat themselves, repeated refrains. The point is not re repetition or, or just persevering in prayer. The point is piling up words, heaping up empty phrases that you think are going to be impressive or by the sheer number or, or words then as sort of magical tools to sort of manipulate the deity into doing what you want. It's so easy for us to begin to think like that, isn't it? I... Uh, sometimes when we have a, a mission taking place, an outreach event, or when we're leading up to Christmas or Easter, we really want a lot of people to come to church. And it's easy, isn't it, for us to think, well, if we have, you know, a lot of prayer meetings about this, then there's more likely to be good fruit. You know, if we have 50 people praying, then, well, what about if we had 500 people praying? You know? And if they pray for one day, that's good. But how about if they prayed for a month? Well, it's bound to get better results. As if we're kind of, by the sheer weight of the amount of talking, it's more likely to happen. Well, prayer is not like that, Jesus is saying. Prayer is not a lever 
that you can use to get God to do what you want. No, and we're going bit by bit. What does Jesus say instead? Do not be like them. Why? Here's the theology. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, isn't that remarkable? The one point that I have had most often posed to me as a question mark to make prayer difficult, why pray when God already knows what we're going to pray, is the reason which Jesus gives to pray as he teaches. This is why we do not pray like the hypocrites. This is why we don't pray like the pagans. Your father already knows before you ask him. What is Jesus saying? He's saying prayer is not ultimately about getting what you want. Prayer is about knowing your heavenly father. Let me explain like this, and I'm going to use shorthand for the sake of time, and I hope you understand that I, I am speaking with brevity a conversation that could go on for a long time. But let me just put it like this. God, in his sovereignty, has set up a system whereby, at least in part, his will is accomplished through the prayers of his people. Now, he didn't have to set up the system that way. He certainly can get done what he wants to get done all the time. He doesn't need our prayers, but he seems to have set up a system whereby, at least in part, his will is accomplished, at least in part, through the prayers of his people. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. Why? Because he's a father. He loves his children to talk to him. Most of you will know that I'm a father. I have four children and frequent sleepless nights. Now, I have a fairly good idea what my children need. You know, uh, for instance, uh, one of them could come up to me and say, you know, I really want a bike for Christmas or whatever it is, you know. Uh, it's not really a surprise to me. You know, I've watched them go into every possible toy store, bike store, and practically drooling over the bikes. You know, I kind of know. But I still want them to tell me. It's because I love them. And I want, ultimately, to have a relationship with them, that much overused word. And so it is with God. He is our Father. So that's why we pray, not to get what we want, but to know Him and for Him to know us. That's how God has set up the system, because He's a Father. Now we come then to these uh, famous words, and again, I, I, I urge you to guard against presumption that just because you've heard them so many times, you understand them. <laughs> if anything, it can be harder to understand them accurately when you've heard them repeated over and over again. So let's look at this carefully. And again, we're going to go bit by bit. Notice how Jesus introduces it in verse uh, 9. Pray then like this. Now, you may know that in Luke's gospel, Jesus introduces uh, this in a slightly different way. Uh, he says there in Luke's gospel, when you pray, say. So we may uh, be sure that there's nothing wrong with repeating word for word this prayer in a public service. 
when you pray, say. Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us that's wrong. Luke's gospel indicates that for sure that's not wrong. It's permissible. When you pray, say. We're, We're told to do that, to say the Lord's Prayer. But Matthew's gospel in particular tells us that the purpose of the Lord's Prayer is to help us avoid fake prayer and false prayer, prayer that is hypocritical, false prayer and fake prayer, prayer that is hypocritical and prayer that is pagan, because we know that our Father knows what we need before we ask. So we pray not like them, that is the hypocrites, the pagans, but instead like this. In other words, it's a model prayer. It's the shape, the structure of this prayer is to shape and to structure our prayers. Pray like this. So what then is the structure? Many different attempts have been made to try and uh, teach that. Here, at least, is uh, how I, uh, I look at it, uh, the structure of this prayer. Very basically, it starts with the Father and then comes to us. So our Father in heaven, it begins. Father, us. That's how it's structured. Our Father in heaven, then three requests, then us, verse 11, three requests. So that's, that's the structure of the Lord's Prayer. First Father, then us. Three requests about the Father, three requests about us. Now, as soon as we see that very basic structure, <laughs> immediately, you have to think that maybe it's not true of you, but certainly for me, many of my prayers are actually the other way around. They start with me and what I need. Oh, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, this is going on. I need to work this out. I, I need your help in this area. Now, you know, he is a father. He longs to hear from us. You don't need to feel guilty about that. But nonetheless, look at this prayer and how it's structured the other way around. Start instead with the father. And then us. Now then, I want you to notice that the first phrase, our Father in heaven, almost, that word, almost certainly that word Father translates behind the Greek an Aramaic word. We don't know for sure, but it's likely at least. And that Aramaic word was probably Abba. That is the family word for Father. You see, very few of us these days will uh, just informally call our dad father. Perhaps you do. Maybe there still are some families in America where that's the case. But I suspect for most of us, you're not sitting around the, the breakfast table or the lunch table and you're, you're saying to your dad, you're saying, Father, please pass the ketchup. Maybe you are. But you're probably saying, Dad, please pass the ketchup, right? Abba was not the formal word for father, but the word that child will call his own daddy. Now, I've thought about this a lot over the years, and I, I know, a, you know, I'm not a sort of great linguist world expert or something, but I know a number of different languages, at least a bit. And every language has this sort of child-level um, element to it for parents. Mama. Papa. It's the sort of easiest thing that a, that a child could say, papa, dada, pata. The simplest possible words that a lisping infant could voice their dependence and affection towards their human father. And in a quiet revolution, whose effects are still being felt, Jesus uniquely starts with 
father, papa, daddy. Now, I know that in our culture today, perhaps uh, we've used uh, that word daddy or dad in a way that is slightly disrespectful towards fathers, in which case father is just fine. Of course it is. And there was no sense, though, of disrespect present in the word Abba, but intimacy is there nonetheless. This is the child's prayer. He is the father, Abba. We are the child. I also want you to notice, though, that the word before that word, uh, for the very uh, first word in English, is not father, but our. And I was thinking about this uh, just uh, as I was studying uh, this week. If this prayer was going to be written in popular evangelicalism today, how would it be written? Here's my guess. My Father, who is in heaven, give me this day my daily bread. My guess is that even when we say our Father, many of us, me included, have in our heads instead my Father, my daily bread. But Jesus does not teach it that way. To truly understand biblical Christianity, and prayer in particular, you've got to get your mind around the fact that at the heart of the Father, God, is us, the church. Being a Christian is not just about, you know, you and your friend and a couple of others in Starbucks with the Bible open. Being a Christian is about being a part of the local church. This is our Father. That's quite different from the way many of us have been trained to think. Just me and my God. No, us as a church runs counter to every instinct of contemporary culture. And therefore, we must pay a special attention to it. Well then, how does Jesus model uh, these three requests that we are uh, to make to the Father in heaven? And they are, of course, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want you to notice that uh, we often say, and perhaps you've heard said, that this prayer begins with praise. And there's some truth to that, because it does begin with God, but it does begin with praise as uh, we often think of praise. Uh, Jesus does not say, for instance, you know, our Father in heaven, we think you're really wonderful, and we just want to sit around and tell you how awesome you are. My gosh, you're an awesome God, wonderful super, you know. Each of these three statements, though they're about God, are really requests. It starts with the Father, three requests that relate to the Father in heaven. The first is, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? What it means we're praying that people would realize that God is holy. You see, the name in Scripture is not simply the verbal social security tag that distinguishes you from someone else with a slightly different set of letters. 
the name is the summary in the Bible of who someone is. So to ask for God's name to be hallowed or seen or recognized as holy means we're asking that people realize that God himself is holy. Now, could there be a more important prayer today? When on certain forms of media or on certain forms of communication, you can use certain words, certain four-letter words at certain times of the day and on certain cable channels and not on other channels, but the name of God. can just be thrown out there. Actually, that name represents Him. And what we're praying is that when people hear the name of God, they would think, holy. That I would think that, that you would think that. It's a very important prayer today. Well, then, as I say, we're just going through it bit by bit. Jesus asks us to pray your kingdom come. Now, to understand what this is about, just to remind us, as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom is the central motif of the Sermon on the Mount. So, Jesus has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Crowds gather, and then He begins to explain to them what it means then to live in the kingdom. And so, to pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray for His rule to be extended, established, and furthered. Now, what is the kingdom? Kingdom is where the king rules. That's a kingdom. Where he rules, where the king rules. He rules in the heart and lives of every true follower of Jesus. But we're still praying for his kingdom to come because his kingdom is growing. Jesus uses the picture of a seed. It's growing gradually to become the largest of all trees. And one day his kingdom will come fully and finally and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and his kingdom will then be continuous with all of reality. Your kingdom come. And so we're praying uh, for God's kingdom to come. We're, we're praying that non-Christians would accept Jesus as their king. And then Jesus asks us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this is a submissive prayer, really, my friends, uh, because we know that God is good, He's holy. We pray for His rule to be extended. Now we ourselves pray that we would follow that will, that we'd be shaped by that will. The illustration for this, the model for this, comes from Jesus, I think, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've already quoted it. You remember, not my will, but your will be done. That's what we're praying. We're saying, Father, your will be done. That we would submit to that, follow it, be shaped by that will. So the prayer starts with Father, then moves to us. Three requests for Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now come three requests relating to us. First is verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now the word for this day is actually unknown outside of this context in the original. So it was almost certainly invented to make this particular point here. Uh, one scholar says this, A.M. Hunt, Hunter, it's used in the morning, this prayer, uh, this petition would ask for bread for the day just beginning. Used in the evening, it would pray for tomorrow's bread. That's, that's our best understanding of it. Many of the ancient uh, commentators uh, the, uh, from the early years of the church sneered at the idea that this petition was for physical bread. They preferred something more spiritual. But actually, I think that's a mistake because right after this, Jesus then goes on to pray for um, spiritual matters. Right here, I think he's uh, talking about daily needs at the most practical level. 
Of course, we can use it by extension for daily bread about spiritual things. That's fine. But I think the real meaning here is about daily necessities. When we pray this, we're asking for God to put food on the table. There may be some people right here this morning in the last year or two have prayed this prayer frequently. And if you found that God has answered that prayer as He promises, I would urge you to give witness to that, to tell other people about that. It reminds us that God provides even at the most basic level for our needs, focuses us away from materialism. Daily bread, that's what we need. Now, the second request is more spiritual, and uh, perhaps the most tricky aspect of this prayer altogether. So, as we go, Jesus then encourages us to ask, uh, this is the next bit, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debts refer to our sins because we owe God obedience, and when we fail, we have a debt. Now, there's a different metaphor used for sin in verse, verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A different metaphor, they're not debt, but going crossing a line, a trespass. Now, obviously, my friends, as I say, this is a tricky bit, and it's very important to understand and, and practice correctly. If we are not forgiven... If we do not forgive, how are we to grasp this point? Well, I think the best way is from a story that Jesus tells. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 23 in uh, your Bibles, Matthew 18 verse 23, Peter's just asked Jesus how many times must he forgive someone? Jesus said 70 times 7, meaning an awful lot of times. And then Matthew 18, verse 23, he tells the story. Here it is. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money and a big debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. He was going to be himself, he and his family, the payment for the debt. Well, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring uh, the master, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Forgiven. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Uh, that's a very small amount, relatively speaking. It's about a day's uh, wage for one day's uh, physical labor. A hundred denarii. Found one of his, just a hundred denarii he owed him. That was the debt. And seizing his fellow servant, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me. And I will pay you. Notice the similarity? But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
Well, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, no longer forgiven. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Back to Matthew 6. Here's the point that Jesus is making. When we are forgiven, we become forgiving. Forgiven people are by nature, by their new nature, forgiving people. If you really have been forgiven, you will forgive someone who does something wrong to you, something relatively minor in comparison to what you've been forgiven. So here's the analogy that Jesus is using. You know, you, you owe someone a million dollars, 10,000 talents, or whatever the figure is, a million dollars, say. There's no way you can pay. And they just say, forgiven. And there's someone over there and he owes you 10 bucks. Well, he's being forgiven a million dollars. Well, here's 10 bucks, you know. But if instead you say, hey, you owe me 10 bucks, likely as not. You've never really been forgiven your million dollars. But if you have... You will be eager to say, oh, yeah, of course, have, to have 20, you know? Million dollars, ten dollars, you know, yeah, have it. Of course, this is an important matter, isn't it, to decide whether we really have been forgiven. But also for those within the Christian community who are real Christians... This also teaches us how to go about forgiving someone, for it is not easy even if we are eager to do it. So often I find people go about this in the wrong kind of way. They focus on uh, what someone has done to them, and they try and sort of say to themselves, well, maybe it was not so bad after all. Perhaps it was actually very bad. Or they try to find a sort of emotional way around the experience. Or they try to put themselves in the other person's shoes so they can understand why they would have done it because if they had been in their situation, they would have done something similar. And some of that could be fine. But basically, it's all, all going about it the wrong kind of way. Jesus doesn't encourage that. Instead, he says, look at the million dollars. It's all been forgiven. You're telling me, that person who did that to you, that ten bucks, you can't give them that? Of course you can. Eagerly. As I say, it is really a sign of being a true Christian. In a town like this, surrounded by religiosity of a Christian kind, it's important that we 
remind ourselves of the signs of being a real Christian, not just growing up in a Christian home, not just going to a Christian college, not just coming to church. Real Christian is evidenced by certain aspects of fruit, and one is this, being eager to forgive. Now, it is hard. I understand that. I find in my own life I have to forgive someone, and then I have to forgive them again and again, and then I finally find out that actually I have forgiven them. (laughs) Not easy, but I'm eager to do it because of all I've been forgiven. But in the end, someone is not actually willing to forgive the ten bucks. Well, if that's you, you need to fall on your knees and plead with the Master for your forgiveness. Because it's a sign perhaps you've never really received the bountiful free grace of God. For if you had, you would offer it to other people. Well, Jesus has one final request for us that He encourages us to make. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, because the Bible tells us that uh, God does not lead us into temptation, don't be sort of thrown off by this uh, this sort of final uh, bit of the uh, Lord's Prayer. The point is simply that uh, we are praying what God has promised that uh, He would do. Uh, God, the Father's name will be hallowed. His kingdom will come. He will provide for our daily bread. He will forgive us when we ask, and He will not lead us into temptation. Therefore, we ask Him not to do so. <laughs> the Father already knows. It's about our commitment, our relationship with Him. And so we're, we're talking to the Father about our areas of temptation, our habitual sins, perhaps, aspects of our walk with God with which we truly struggle. And maybe there's something there that you've never really brought to the Father. Maybe you've talked about it with other people. But have you ever said, Father, protect me from this? Don't lead me into that temptation. Indeed, deliver us from evil. Sometimes people think that uh, the more biblical you get, the less you understand that there's a sort of spiritual battle out there. No, the spiritual battle is very real. There is evil, and there is an evil one, and we need the Father's help to be rescued from evil, and He is the sovereign God, and He can and will deliver us from evil. Now, before I conclude, let me just uh, make one comment for those of the older generation who grew up perhaps with the King James Version, and they may well know that there's a traditional ending to the Lord's Prayer, which is not in modern translations. And the reason for that is because it was almost certainly not a part of the original prayer, but a well-meaning liturgical um, addition, probably a reflection or even a quotation from the Bible, perhaps First Chronicles, um, something that's perfectly true, at least, and fine to say, even in church, but probably not a part of what Jesus originally taught in this model prayer, and hence not in most modern translations. Now, let me conclude. 
What is Jesus saying? He is teaching us to pray by telling us not to pray like the hypocrites or like the pagans. The hypocrites, they pray showy prayers, loving to be seen by people. We're not to pray like that, not in a prayer meeting. You know, where have you been in the situation where each of us try to pray better than the person before you? Oh, wow, he prayed well. I've got to to beat that. Like a sort of game of prayer one-upmanship. Well, you know, he mentioned eschatology. I have to mention the eschatological consummation of the Perusian. How? You know, and we bamboozle each other with theological jargon. So the poor, unenlightened new Christian is leaving the prayer meeting, scrambling for a dictionary to find out what we are talking about. Or we improve upon the last person to pray with more passion by really, really, really awesome God. You know, well they cried. I've got to weep. We count, uh, as I said, you know, how many, oh, yes, Lord, we get. Mm. It's not about that. It's not about performance in front of other people. But nor are we to pray like the pagans. That is like the tendency of non-Christian religions with a different idea of God, where there's a tendency to use sort of words of, in a vacuous, empty sort as if by some kind of magical trick we can get God to do what we like. It's so easy to fall into this trap too. I've, it seems to me we, 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 we picture what we want. You know, I, I, I'm picturing a bike right now. And I, therefore, somehow I feel like I'm more likely to be heard by God or I really visualize it. Might work psychologically, but or, or, or we seem to be almost employing the techniques of transcendental meditation, or using perhaps even rosary beads in this way, where we repeat over and over again to try and gain some sort of tri- some sort of result. If I say this fifty times, I'm more likely to be heard. Well, she's saying all that is wrong-headed because it's thinking wrong about who God is. God is not a force or an energy or a mystical power. He is a person. In particular, he is your father. Can you imagine a child going up to their dad and trying to communicate to their dad by picturing in their mind peaceful thoughts? Or grabbing a bunch of beads and saying the same phrase over and over again, you know. Dad, I really want this, I really want this, I really want this, I really want, you know. The dad might send you to a psychiatrist, but he'd be unlikely to do what you wanted. Or perhaps even know what you really wanted. You have to talk to God like he is a person. In particular, like he is a hallowed, holy, good Papa. Abba. Daddy. So we're not to pray in fake ways or false ways like the pagans or the hypocrites. Instead, we're to pray like the Lord's Prayer or the children's prayer, perhaps. The prayer that starts with Father with three requests for the Father and then comes to us with three requests for us. And our prayers are to be shaped like that. We start with God. We pray that His name will be hallowed. We pray that His kingdom would extend. We pray that His will would be done. So I wonder, perhaps this week... When you pray, you can spend half the time praying for God's name 
kingdom, and will. So often, it's in my own life too, so often our prayers seem to be predominantly about our desires and needs, sometimes even relatively trivial matters. Or we spend most of the time praying about health needs, which is fine, we do that here even from the pulpit. It's a good thing to do, daily bread, etc. But it's our concerns instead half the time. And first of all, the Father's name. Kingdom and will. And then we pray for us physically, daily bread, spiritually, forgiveness of sins as we forgive others. Morally, not led into temptation, but delivered from evil to beat that habitual sin. I wonder, my friends, if we all here at College Church began to pray like this, what would take place at home, in small groups, in church, in prayer meetings, on the train, in your private storage room in the basement? What would happen? Jesus tells us we will be rewarded, that is, with the Father God Himself. Let's pray. A pause for you to uh, pray in secret. Our Father, we pray that your name would be seen as holy. We pray that uh, your kingdom would extend, your rule would extend. We pray that we would uh, do your will. Father, we ask that you provide for our uh, physical needs today, our daily bread. Father, we pray that you would forgive us our debts as we've forgiven those who have uh, wronged us. And Father, would you uh, not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.